Father, we're thankful again for the gift of Scripture and for your grace that you show us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for how you worked in these ancient times through your chosen people. And we pray tonight that you would illuminate our hearts to what you were doing in history in those days. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, tonight we're going to move to the fourth part which in this series. Um, this is the part that we should have started in September. But I guess we're going to be perpetually behind now. <laughs> uh, the five and a half year series or something. Um, I found an old slide that I had made up years ago. It's a little beat up, but... I'm going to move all these over to uh, PowerPoint and get some uh, computer software, I mean, um, a color printout from PowerPoint, and they'll be in a lot better shape someday when I get a chance to do it. But um, this gives you an idea of, of the flow of the events. Now, of course, we've looked at the uh, flood, the covenant, the call of Abraham, the exodus in Sinai, the conquest and settlement, the accession and reign of David, the rise and reign of David. And what we're going to do um, now is, is start a, another series of events. And this series of events takes us through the end of the Old Testament. So, just to get a big idea of where we're moving, we're going to start with the golden era of Solomon. And this is the peak of Israel's culture. We'll talk about that tonight. Then we're going to look at the decline of the kingdom. Um, Solomon was the high point and everything else uh, throughout the Old Testament was basically in decline. Then we're going to look at the fall of the kingdom, a uh, rather gruesome period of history, but some very important lessons come out of that. Then we go to the exile and how Israel survived trying to live out of the land among a sea of Gentile nations for 70 years. And then the restoration which was the, um, that was the time when they came back in the land preparing for the New Testament. Then, of course, uh, one of these years we'll get to the birth of the king, the life of the king, the death of the king, and the resurrection. But that's all, that's the New Testament that follows this series. So that's where we are and where we're going tonight. What we want to do tonight is... Um, if you'll take the notes that were handed out last time, I want to uh, comment on a few of the uh, introductory paragraphs about part four and how we're going to kind of shift gears in our perspective. What we've done um, in parts two and three is we've covered the Bible over against the pagan culture around it. So in part two, remember we dealt with creation, the fall, the flood, and the covenant, and we labeled that as the time of the buried truths. Um, we call that the buried truths of origins. And the reason why I entitled it that way is because that era of history from before the flood is largely deliberately forgotten. So it's a time of suppressed truth. And so we use the term the buried truths of origins. Buried psychologically. Buried because the, the, the mind of flesh doesn't want to know that kind of information because to know it is to be responsible. Then we said last year, part three, we said these are the, the um, truths that interrupt, disruptive, and we use the word disruption, the disruptive truths. And we use that word because the founding of an elect nation chosen among all the nations is a deliberate, sovereign discrimination. And for people like us who live in our era, the, where everything's supposedly the same and everybody's opinion is equally smart or equally stupid, however you want to view it, 
um, when everything is relative, it's terribly disruptive to have the claim that there is a way and a truth and a life and no man comes to the Father except through that method. So this is why once Abraham was elected and we have Israel starting off on its own, uh, this becomes, becomes a very disruptive thing. And the counterculture that Israel developed and goes on into the New Testament into the church is a disruptive counterculture. It's always disrupting what Satan had planned for civilization. Because once the Noahic civilization began and began to be corrupted, uh, playing into Satan's hands, um, the model of civilization was a fallen civilization, was a corrupted civilization. And so if God is going to have his own counterculture, there's going to be friction between them. And indeed we saw there's a lot of friction between them. Now we come tonight, we're moving into a new part. And we're going to entitle this section, instead of the buried truths, the disruptive truths, these we're going to entitle the disciplinary truths. And we're going to use the word discipline because what we have from Solomon to the end of the Old Testament is God's reign upon his own people. So now we're going to shift. Whereas before, I always tried to consciously compare the Bible with the pagan surroundings, and we always try to take the contrast between paganism and the counterculture of Israel. Starting now, we're going to look inside the kingdom. It's as though we've come to live inside the house. And we want to look and see how God disciplines his own. And that's the story of the Old Testament. And we learn more about God. Every time we do this, we learn more about our God and Savior. Well, in part four, we're going to learn about how, what he expects of people in his kingdom. And how he rules his kingdom. And we'll see that he rules from a position of strength. And it's a struggle. And if you'll look at the middle paragraph on page two, I say, now we look not at the offense toward the outside pagan world, but at the inner life of the elect nation. And I point out her history was controlled. Now, this is important, and maybe you want to check this in the notes, because I'm going to spend the rest of the evening uh, going through two major Bible passages controlling this, this point. Her history was controlled by the great covenants. Very important statement. Remember we went through sanctification and we said there's a, there's a position in Abraham that David had and then there's the circle of his obligations. There's the area of what God promised to do and then there's the area of what God expects the believer to do. And they're two different phases two different areas of truth. Well, her history was controlled by the great covenants such as the Abrahamic unconditional covenant of election and the Sinaitic conditional covenant of kingdom rule. On the one hand, it, and here's the tension, this next sentence describes the tension that goes on in chapter after chapter after chapter from this point on in, in the Old Testament. On the one hand, Israel's future destiny was secure in terms of her racial continuity, her national geographic location, and her mission to the world. What covenant is that? We state these covenants. The land, the seed, and the blessing. The Abrahamic covenant. So, that gives her the security. On the other hand, Israel's passage through time toward that destiny was conditioned upon her loyalty to Yahweh. Blessing for obedience, cursing for rebellion. Thousands of Israelites would be lost, and at times her very historical existence seemed to hang by a thread. And that's the suspense in the story. How can God reconcile this discipline that he exercises toward his kingdom that looks for all the world like he's going to extinguish it in his fury? And at the other time, say that the destiny is fulfilled. The destiny is secure. Now, last time we concluded with a very important section applied to the spiritual life of David. And you remember we covered his confession. It's, it's the spiritual first aid in believers' lives. 
And yet, I'll bet you, you could go out and do a survey of 100 Christians and probably get 20% that know what's going on in the area of confession. Some people think that you have to confess to get your salvation back again. Other people think that it's, uh, you have to go through this big, long uh, peer pressure system. And it's none of that. It's becoming convinced of the truthfulness of our violation of God's will and it's basically centered on our relationship between God and ourselves. There are social consequences. We're not denying the social consequences patterning after David's life. But we are saying that the solution to the social consequences doesn't come from the social consequences. The solution to the social consequences come about by a vertical reestablishment of a fellowship between God and man. And that can only be accomplished by true biblical confession. So, we'll, we'll come back to that truth again and again, because in this disciplinary thing, we're going to have this, this come up again and again. So that was kind of like an introduction last, uh, last week. Um, I think that's all I want to say about uh, uh, page two and three, or page two at least. Um, now what I want to do is, uh, on page three... I give you the uh, Deuteronomy 32, which was the national anthem of Israel. That was the song of Moses, not the other song of Moses. Moses had two... There's two songs in the Bible said to be songs of Moses. One is that Exodus 15 one that I think I played here one time, Handel's Israel and Egypt um, rendition of it. That's the song of the Exodus. But at the end of his life, Moses taught another song to the people. And he asked the people to maintain this song, this hymn, as their national anthem. Now, our national anthem, of course, commemorates what went on in the harbor here in Baltimore. Uh, and very, very um, defiant, has a military motif, it has salvation motif in it, uh, as national anthems do. And every country has its own national anthem that somehow depicts its past history. Some momentous event, usually either like with Russia, her national anthem uh, is commemorating the victories of the Russian armies, our national anthem commemorating the, the episode here in the city, and the national anthems of, I guess, the French and so on. Um, but what is different about this national anthem, Deuteronomy 32, is if you look at it, it's not just the past history of the nation. It's a prophetic national anthem. And right here, let's just do a stop and do an observation. Before we go any further, when you look at the national anthem on page 3, and you compare it to our national anthem, Star Spangled Banner, you see a prophetic element in it. And that distinguishes the biblical national anthem from a natural national anthem. Why is there a difference? Well, let's think about that for a minute. Why is it that God's chosen nation has a peculiarity in its national anthem that we don't have in our national anthem? What made the difference? The difference is that they are locked into a, into a covenant relationship with God and God is speaking to them and he's letting them know their national history. So that's an evidence empirically of what? Revelation. God is revealing himself to this nation in words that can not only be understood, but they can be sung. Now just imagine if our national anthem had prophetic, you know, stanzas three and four were prophet. Maybe we would want to sing it. Um, but... That would be like us singing our national anthem and when you get to stanza one, you know, it would be the past and stanza two might be the present. Stanza three would be the future. That's how this song is structured. Now let's observe the content of this national anthem. It says at the very beginning, the lead ends of this song, that Yahweh led him, there was no foreign God with him. Now you'll notice right there what... The, how, this is the theology of the National Anthem. Now, how does it start? Well, it gets back to this diagram that we've seen over and over, doesn't it? There is one God and one God only. 
in the scriptures. There's the creator-creature distinction. There are no other gods. So right here, there's no foreign god with him. <clears throat> now the blessing. And we want to think in terms of Israel's history. As we read through this national anthem, we're reading about the Exodus, we're reading about Mount Sinai, we're reading about the conquest and settlement, uh, we're reading about all this, this history that went on in here. So, let's look at it. He did eat of the increase of the field, oil out of the flinty rock, butter of the herd, milk of the flock with fat of rams, rams the bread of Bashan. This is prosperity. A prosperity brought on by God's blessing. How was God's blessing measured? It's agricultural. But what corresponds economically to these things? Let's think about it. The butter of the herd, the milk of the flock, the fat of rams, the rams of the bread of Bashan, goats with the finest wheat, the blood of the grape, thou drinkest wine. And that would conclude the first stanza of the National Anthem. That is economic blessing. Those are assets, agricultural produce. So, the first thing that's characterized by a blessing of God is economic prosperity. Then it says, But Jeshurun waxed fat and kicked. Thou art waxed fat, thou art grown thick, thou art become sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. They moved him to jealousy with strange gods, and Yahweh sought and abhorred them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. I will heap evils upon them. I will send arrows upon them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured burning hate, and bitter destruction. I said, I will scatter them afar. <coughs> now, see this history? What's going to happen down here? The end of the Old Testament. The exile. I will scatter them afar. So, please notice how this national anthem depicts that nation's history. I would make them the remembrance of them to cease from among men. Remember I said there's a tension now, you will observe, a tension between that electing covenant in Abraham and the blessing cursings of the Mosaic covenant. So, right here is an expression theologically that tension. I said I would scatter them afar. I would make the remembrance of them cease from among men. Now, if you just stop with that line, what does that sound like? They're going to lose their salvation, right? They are going to be thrown out of history, cast aside as the Canaanites, and never recover again in all of history. But now, theologically, notice how the sentence goes on to say, I would scatter them were it not that I feared the provocation of the enemy, lest their adversaries should judge amiss, lest they should say, Our hand is exalted and Yahweh has not done all this. Now, in those last three lines, there's a whole powerful, they are packed theologically with great truth. Let's go through that slowly so you see what's going on there. We want to observe this because... God is, is, is investing these words with a certain meaning. And he says, God says that I am holy. These people down here have sinned. They've gone negative. They have rebelled against me. They have sinned. And my holiness comes down here and says, judgment. And that's an expression of God's righteousness and His holiness. But He says, I won't eliminate them, because if I eliminate them, then I have started something in history. See, here's the election of Israel. I have started something in history, and it has failed. And that casts aspersions upon my sovereignty, upon my omnipotence. And the enemies will say, ah, the God of Israel is neither sovereign nor powerful. He can't bring about what he has promised. So God says, for my glory, for my glory, I will carry on the program. What does this do to human merit? What does this do to somebody who thinks in Israel that, well, we're going to endure because we're so good. We are, we are so great. We are such a wonderful, loving people. Yes, we sin, but we do good works, and our good works balance the bad works, and so we earn our way down through history. 
See this theology here? It cuts that off. It brutally cuts it off. It says, if I just considered your righteousness, Israel, I'd eliminate you. But it turns out that I have a plan that I promised I would do and I will carry out that for my glory. So who gets the glory in this operation? Israel or God? It's God that gets the glory. And this is a lesson we want to learn about Christian life. We can screw up, we can do everything else, but never be deceived into thinking that our salvation is secure because we are so religiously pious and that we have this merit and so forth. It doesn't. The merit comes from external source, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we remain saved because he's promised it and his name is at stake. So this, this changes things a little bit, changes the perspective. And this is what we want to look at as we look at these stories. These aren't just, again, I can't say this often enough, the stories in the Old Testament are like beads on a necklace. And they're wonderful. You can study each bead. Each is an artistic masterpiece. But for the sake of what we're doing in Thursday nights, we're trying to put the beads, take them away from our eyes, forget some of the details of each bead, and look at the necklace. We want to see how they're all structured. And this structure is behind this part four. I would make remembrance of them to cease were it not. That hinge that goes from that first line, I would make them to the second line were it not. That's the tension in the Old Testament. The first line expresses Mosaic theology of conditional righteousness. If they are righteous, I will bless. If they are unrighteous, I will curse. The second line brings up the Abrahamic election. But this is my program and I will continue. And Yahweh has not done, Yahweh shall judge all his people, repent himself for his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining shut up or felt at large. So this national anthem is a, is a snapshot, a small picture, a review of Israel's history. Well, now what we want to do tonight is we want to prepare for the first chapter. We only have two, um, two sheets of that t tonight. And I, I think I put in there, yeah, on the page five notes uh, for the ambitious souls. Um, I've suggested some reading for you. Again, I, I recommend for the sake of Thursday night class <coughs> not to get bogged down in details, but get an easy translation and read it like a novel. Go through it at a high rate, high pace. What I want to do tonight is take us to a passage in Kings. And we're going to look and examine what Solomon did at one of the great high points in his career. 1 Kings chapter 8, when he ascended the throne, and after he ascended the throne, he built the temple for God. Remember, David was going to build it, and God said, no, don't build it. Uh, your son will build it. So we're going to look at Solomon's actions here in Jerusalem. It says in verse 1 of 1 Kings chapter 8 that Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribe. So this is a national gathering together of, of the leaders again, just like we saw back in Samuel when David was on the throne. By the way, does anybody know the name of the prophet that ordained Solomon? Remember what we said with David? You can't have a king without a prophet. The prophets were the kingmakers. Now, we facetiously as Americans, we talk about kingmakers as the smoke-filled room guys in the back of the political parties. And we call them the kingmakers. And in a way, it's true, because the deals are cut. Deals are cut between rich contributors and powerful interest groups and so on, and the people that want, win usually have the backing of pretty powerful groups. So they would call those people the kingmakers. Well, in the Bible, there's a kingmaker, and the kingmaker is God's prophet. Now, who was the prophet that picked David as king, Remember? book is written after him, Samuel. Then there came another prophet who confronted David after Samuel was an old man by David's time. And so his name was Nathan. 
And it's interesting, all these guys have, have great names and get to know the language. And uh, Samuel's named after uh, Ask and Nathan, this word, is the Hebrew verb literally. Nathan means he gave. And that's why when you combine J-O plus N-A-T-H-A-N, this is short for Jehovah or Yahweh. Yahweh has given. That's the name Jonathan that we have in the Old Testament. Then you can combine, if you don't like that, you can take the stem Nathan and you can tack E-L on the end for God. God has given. And that's Nathaniel. So, learn to see these stems. You'll see it again and again. There, the, bio, the Hebrew has these usually three consonant stems and it comes out in a lot of biblical names. And you'll see the same prefixes and suffixes. Uh, Solomon's name, that's another one. Uh, Salom it comes from the word to peace. So the very name of Solomon is peace. And he probably had 20 or 30 other names. And this is why in archaeology, when they try to find out, gee, who was this king? Well, we don't know which of the 25 or 30 names this, the person who wrote this inscription was using. So Solomon might have been known by other names in history. But this is his name that the biblical writers chose to know him by because it means peace. So Solomon assembled the people and all the men of Israel came and they assembled themselves in a certain month and they took up the ark. So the first thing we notice is they are going to resolve the unresolved problem that in the land of Israel you have at Gibeah the ark and the tabernacle where it was kept in Saul's day and then down here you have the city of David Gibeah is just about northwest of, of this up the road from Jerusalem. And here David has the city and David brings the ark to the city but the temple isn't there and this tabernacle isn't there. It's a funny thing. The ark got moved down here and the tabernacle's still back here. And the people are worshiping God actually in two places. So this, this mess is going to be resolved right now. King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel, verse 5, who were assembled, were with him before the ark. Notice, he, like his father, Solomon gets involved in the religious life of his country. The reason for this is, is that the Jewish messianic king harps back to the old Gentile model. That is, he's a shepherd king. He's a king over the civil authority, and he's a shepherd or a pastor over the spiritual area. So they kind of mix a little bit. Then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant to its place into the inner sanctuary of the house to the most holy place under the wings of the cherub. So the, the temple was all built. Uh, it's a tremendous story how this temple was built. It was probably considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world when it was built. It's a massive edifice. Apparently beautiful. Scholars have said there's probably six or seven different parts to it. There's the Palace of Solomon. There's the Palace of Jehovah. There's the Palace of something else. There was, it was appendages, and nobody knows what it looked like, except we know the foundation, because the foundation's still there. When I visited Israel some 20 years ago, now I guess you can get closer to it, but it was really kind of tempting because they had this big, massive manhole dug, and of course a fence around it so you couldn't fall in, and you look down there, and there was lights shining down on these rocks. And those rocks were the foundation of Solomon's temple. They're still there. So now, what happens in this chapter? I thought when I was sitting there looking at these rocks, I thought, gee, you know, if the rocks could cry out, what history those rocks have seen? Because those rocks in that foundation that you can reach down and touch, those rocks saw what happened here when God's very presence came into that temple. I mean, you talk about what, what could that rock say if it could speak. Um, notice in verse 9 is the description of the ark. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there in Oreb when the Lord made a covenant. came to pass and the priest came from the holy place. Cloud filled the house of the Lord so the priest could not stand to minister. At that point in verse 10, God in a physical way, the physical, observable, empirical way, says that he accepts the maneuver, he accepts the fact that his temple now will be at Jerusalem. And he shows it in a very visible way. I mean, again, it would be great if someone had taken a video. 
of this thing because the, the glory of God actually showed me, you know, what did the glory of God look like? I'm often curious. You know, wouldn't it be neat for an artist to figure out what does this glory look like? We have some tips later on in this, in this passage. So now Solomon says, and as he speaks, we want to track with Solomon because what I want to do tonight in our, in our time together is I want to show you how the Bible is, is one piece. We may be studying 1 Kings 8, but 1 Kings 8 is locked structurally into everything we've talked about before. And I want you to see how Solomon knows it. Because now when we start going in, we're talking about prophets, there's going to be fights, there's going to be death, there's going to be judgments, there's going to be all kinds of things happening here. And what I don't want is I don't want you to get the false impression that these are just random happenings. There's no rhyme and reason to them. It was a thick cloud, just like that thick darkness in Egypt. So, if you were an artist now, and you depicted this cloud coming into the temple, what you would depict is an ink-black cloud coming in there. I really talk about something spooky. This wasn't glowing. This was so dark. It's like a black hole. And God dwells in it. Several people testify. Isaiah testifies to that. I have surely built thee a lofty house, a place for thy dwelling forever. And then the king faced and he blessed the assembly. Now what he's going to do, beginning in verse 15, is Solomon is going to bless the people because of what he said. And then he's going to warn the people. Let's watch what he says. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has spoke with his mouth to my father David and has fulfilled it with his hand. Fulfilled what? Now let's watch the text. Solomon's speaking in front of these people and he says, God has fulfilled. Fulfilled what? What did God say to his father? His father said, that your dynasty would last forever. You would be in a father-son relationship. And then he made a little sub-promise. Remember? Second Samuel 7. There was a little adjunct. You won't make the temple, but your son will. That's what's fulfilled in this day. So Solomon consciously, in verse 13 and 14 and 15... He is consciously thinking of 2 Samuel 7. So learn to read your Old Testament this way. You should always think when you see somebody speaking in the Old Testament that they are speaking out of a knowledge of what went before. When they pray, you'll notice this. These great prayers you read in Scripture, those prayers weren't just made up. They didn't just get up there and say, Oh Lord, to think of it. Those prayer, the prayer requests are locked into the clauses of the covenant. When, well, we're going to see something fascinating. When, when Elisha comes and he announces the judgment, and he, he judge, you know, the famine comes and all these other judgments, they're all there. They're back there in the covenant. And all, I, all Elisha's doing is, hey, he says, this year, this time, at this day, and this week, we are going to implement clause 35 of the Mosaic covenant. That's what he's announcing. Now, it's, when you don't see that, it sounds like these are meaning guys and they're just going to you know, be nasty today. Well, it's not being nasty. They are officially administering and announcing the implementation of covenant sections. So it's all very legal, all very covenant structured. And you see it here. You'll see further. Verse 16, Since the day I brought my people Israel from Egypt... I did not choose a city out of all the tribes in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now, it was in the heart of my father David to build a house. But the Lord said to my father, because it was in your heart, you did well it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you won't build a house, but your son will. You see how he's following? Your Bible should have numerous footnotes and cross-references here to 2 Samuel 7. I mean, you can't miss this thing. It's so obvious that Solomon had studied the covenant that his father had with God. And he built his life on this covenant. He just didn't, this didn't come out of the blue. He's not making this up now. 
Now the Lord has fulfilled His word which He spoke. I have risen in the place of my father David. I sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I set a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord. Now which covenant is that in verse 21? <clears throat> that is the Sinaitic covenant. So now we've got two covenants here going on. See? In verse 20, that's the Davidic covenant. Now we come up in verse 21, and that's the Mosaic covenant, which he made with our fathers and so on. Now he stands up and he prays. Now here's a model of what he's praying, and what we want to do, because one of the neat aspects of all this is we learn a little bit more about prayer and how to structure it. So this is going to be the prayer of dedication. Now, Solomon could have written this out and had some big glowing uh, prayer uh, words, flowery words and so on. And it, it does have a lot of impressive words, but let's see if we can watch a structure to this prayer. Watch what he's saying. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. He spread out his hands toward heaven and he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or in earth beneath. How does he start? How does he start? He starts with our favorite little chart, doesn't he? There is one God and one God only. Do you see everywhere in the scripture we start with a creator-creature distinction? Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Father, maker of heaven and earth. The Bible always starts with this, except our hymn book that starts out with this new creed with starting with Jesus. But that's more of a commentary on the nitwit that wrote it than it is on the theology of the Bible. So, he starts with verse 23, and he says, this is the God of creation. What else does he describe in verse 23, on which their history is going to be very, very contingent, very much dependent? Who art keeping covenant? And then he uses a technical word, loving kindness. We ran into this once before. Remember? Kezid. Two words in the Hebrew for love. Ahav and Kezid. Ahav is boy dates girl, boy loves girl. Kezid is boy marries girl. Now he kezids her. What happened? What was the difference? Because at marriage there was a covenant made. So Kezid is love inside a covenant. It is love that is surrounded by a covenant. It has love with a structure to it. So God has a structure to his love. You are keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to thy servants who walk before thee with all their heart. Who has kept thy servant, my father David. You have promised him, and so on. You have spoken with your mouth. Therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep with thy servant David, my father, that which thou hast promised him. Now, what do you notice about this prayer request? Why is this prayer request Guaranteed to be answered. Right off the bat, we know this prayer cannot go wrong. It will be answered, and it doesn't depend on how he feels about it. What did he do in his prayer request to guarantee an answer? He prayed according to the will of God. God said he would do this, and Solomon is requesting something right in line with that covenant. So he's designing his prayer request to fit underneath the plan of God key point. We'll see this again and again. The prophets do this all the time when they make prayer requests. So he's asking him to keep his covenant. He's already said God is a covenant-keeping God, verse 23, and now he prays that indeed this covenant will be kept in his day. Now in verse 27, we see a little bit of Solomon's wisdom. He says, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot tame thee. How much less this house which I have built. Why do you suppose that's in there? Remember back in June, I did that five-part series on Ecclesiastes. Remember we said Solomon was a brilliant man. He was a man who was so multi-skilled, he would remind you, if you saw him, of Leonardo da Vinci. There's nothing this guy couldn't do. And one of... Solomon's great skills was to penetrate to the guts of an issue, to the real heart and foundation of an issue. Now, the danger in building temples 
and setting up religious practices is that when we do those kinds of things, we begin to subtly think that we've captured God. That God is now controlled because we've got it all aced. Instead, God is always bigger than that because He's infinite. And because He's bigger than we are, we always have to confess that we know something of Him, but not all of Him. He is, in other words, the technical term is, He is incomprehensible. Not unknowable. Not unknowable. Just incomprehensible, meaning I can't ever get a perfect, complete picture of Him. Those of you who love children's stories, and if you have small children, you ought to have the Narnia Chronicles by C.S. Lewis. It's a classic children's story. And in one of the Narnia Chronicles, Lewis has this tremendous thing, never forgotten, it's so great. Lucy comes across Aslan, the God figure. And she's nervous when she sees this lion, and she, Lewis has her talking to the beaver. And she turns to the beaver and she says, um, is, is that a good lion? Because she's afraid of what's going to happen. Uh, no, no, she says, is that a tame lion? That's what she says. Starts off, that's a tame lion. And the beaver says, looks her at Lucy and he says, no, Lucy. Aslan is not a tame lion, but he's a good one. You see what Lewis did with that quick turn? I mean, what a neat way out of a child's mouth. What's the difference between a tame lion and a good lion? A tame lion is controlled from outside of himself. A good lion is self-controlled. He will decide what he's going to do. And all we can do is not trust the fact... See, there's two ways. If you're afraid of God, one way to handle a problem is make him tame. But to do that means we've put him under our control, which is impossible. The other way, if we're afraid of God, is to trust that his character is good enough so we won't be harmed. Right? What other choices you got? Anybody think of a third choice? I mean, that little dialogue between Lucy and the beaver about Aslan captures it all. Either you tame God, make an idol out of him, or you have to trust that he's good in all of his infinite power. Because if he isn't good, we've got a real problem here. And so Solomon reminds everybody in verse 27 that he is the great architect, Solomon was. This temple is very great, but don't get any foolish ideas that we've comprehended God here. God remains incomprehensible, and heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain thee. So Solomon hasn't put God in a box, even though the Shekinah glory is now dwelling inside that temple. Yet have regard to the prayer of thy servant and to a supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prays before thee today, that thine eyes may be open toward this house night and day, toward the place of which thou hast said, My name shall be there, to listen to the prayer which thy servant shall pray toward this place. Now, verse 30 is where King Solomon administers spiritual leadership to the people. Remember we said the messianic leader... Not only is a civil leader, he is a spiritual leader. And here he begins to partition on behalf of his nation. This is a king who goes to God in prayer for his people. That's a ministering messianic leader. Listen to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place. Hear and forgive. Now he starts to go through the law. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before thine altar in this house, then hear thou in heaven and act and judge thy service. By the way, you notice, even though the cloud is in the temple, do you see how careful in this dedicatory prayer he is? Hear from heaven, O Lord. He, he, he doesn't want the people to think in terms there's something magic going on in this building. Here in heaven, O Lord, whatever's in this building is a symbol and a finite replica of what goes on in reality. So hear from heaven when people pray here. When thy people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against thee, if they turn to thee again and confess thy name and pray and make supplication to thee in this house, then hear thou in heaven. Forgive the sins of thy people Israel and bring them back to the land which thou hast given to their fathers. Now right there, Solomon is struggling with something. Solomon knows that the terms of the Sinaitic Covenant, it has cursings 
and it has blessings. Cursings for negative volition, blessings for positive volition toward God. And he knows that the people are going to get cursed because the people are sinners. This is what they're going to do. So now how do they recover? What did we do last week? We dealt with what? First aid, spiritual confession. And that's what Solomon's dealing with, except this is not an individual confession, this is the national confession. Now, let's hold a place and go back to where, what Solomon has on his mind. So, if you hold a place, turn back to Leviticus 26. We covered this only very briefly last year, when we were going through the Sinaitic Covenant, and I said we'd get back to it. Well, here's one of those times. Leviticus 26 Here is a cursings and blessings formula. Now, this is the fine print of the Sinaitic Covenant. The Sinaitic Covenant installed God as king. So, we have God as king over the nation. When the people go on negative volition, when they sin, the king will discipline that. He will judge that. He will act as a righteous ruler. When the people are obedient, he will bless them. Now, in verse... Chapter 26 of Leviticus, here's the blessing section. The blessing section goes from verse 1, or verse 2 actually, to verse 13. So that's the entire blessing section. The cursing section from verse 14 on. Now what I want to do here in the remaining minutes is we want to look at the manifestations of blessing and the manifestations of cursing. I recommend you read the parallel passage. The parallel passage of this is Deuteronomy 28. So Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, you want to read these folks because you're going to see the manifestations in the rest of the Old Testament we're studying. And I don't want you to think that those things just happen, that God just puts them there. They're just a big surprise. They're not surprises. It's all forecast right here. So let's look. Verse 2, You shall keep my Sabbath, reverence my sanctuary, I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes... Then I will give you... Now, let's look at the blessings. Let's look at what a blessing looks like. I will give you rains in their season, so the land will yield its produce, and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. And you see verse 5 is in terms of economics. So, what is one of the blessing signs in verses 4 to 6, as we would say today in our language? Let's start listing these. Blessings. And then we'll list the cursings. First of all, economics. There's an economic blessing in the kingdom of God. Now, keep in mind now, this is not the church. This is Israel. And there's going to be a difference in the church. So, before you, you know, think because you're an obedient Christian, you should get a million dollars, it doesn't work quite that way. So, this is Israel. This is national Israel in history. I will give you reins... And verse 5, the results. Gathering, great gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. Now, what's the next kind of blessing? Verse 6, 7, 8. I will grant peace in the land, so you may lie down with no, man, no one making trouble. I will eliminate harmful beasts from the land. No sword will pass through your land. But you will chase your enemies, and they will fail before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall by the sword. So, how do we enumerate the second blessing? It's military victory. Victory in the battlefield. Victory in business, victory in the military. Let's read further. Verse 9, I will turn towards you and make you fruitful and multiply and I will confirm my covenant. And you will eat the old supply, clear out the old and the new. I'll make my dwelling among you. Well, being fruitful and multiply is that you will have an expansion of the population. Population will grow. In the Bible, population growth is a sign of blessing. Now, the reason they weren't overpopulated, you've got to kind of balance this out today because we're worried about overpopulation. The reason there isn't a cursing in the Old Testament was that the blessing of God agriculturally and economically was in concert with the population explosion. 
So the productivity per person remained the same. So as you increase people, you increase the blessing. The problem, in most cases, what so-called, you go to school and you get some whiny person from the ecology movement, they're always worried about, uh, you know, overpopulation. Have you ever driven around this country? Is this country overpopulated? You know, you drive through Maine, you can't find a person. You find moose, but you can't find a person. You drive a hundred miles there, you not see a person. The world is not overpopulated. Now, what's happened is, for another good example is, you know what one of the most dense populated areas is? Hong Kong. How many people are starving in Hong Kong? Where you have starvation, you have stupidity. The reason people are starving is because their governments are stupid. We've had missionaries raise money to take water pumps to certain African countries whose population was starving and actually no water. I mean, these poor people were dying of thirst, leave alone dying of lack of food. And that pump got on the, on the dock of one well-known city in Africa, and the missionaries couldn't move it over the dock because the corrupt rulers wanted the missionaries to pay an exorbitant tariff on importing the free water pump to pump water for their people. Now you tell me who's stupid. Where you have this kind of thing go on, and it goes on again and again and again, you have corrupt farm practices that ruin the land, you have idiots that rule the governments. You have taxes that blast them to pieces. You realize you go to Israel, first thing you notice about Israel in the, in the Arab areas, no trees. You know why there are no trees? There were trees there up until the 19th century. Where did all the trees go? Well, the Turks took it over, Ottoman Empire. You know how they tax people? Number of trees per acre. Guess what happened to the trees? You want to reduce your tax bill? Chop the trees down. They did. And then what happened? On the soil eroded. Now we can't raise food. Why are we overpopulated? So, in the Bible, increase in population is not a cursing. It is a blessing because it is accompanied by wisdom. Now let's go to the other side in verse 14. But if you do not obey me and do not carry out these commandments, instead you reject them, I, in turn, will do this to you. Now look at the particular things that he curses them. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, a consumption and fever that will waste away your eyes, cause your soul to pine away. You will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies shall eat it up. Now, in that one verse, 16, can you spot what's happening? You have military defeat. Another thing you have here is a tremendous disease problem. Disease is always a picture of God's cursing. Military defeat is a picture of God's cursing. I will set my face against you, shall you be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. That is a psychological problem. Gee, these look familiar. This is when people go nuts in the head have all kinds of psychological problems along with disease. It's a sign of cursing. It says, if you won't obey me, verse 18, after this, then I'll punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break down your pride of power. I will make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. What's that talking about? Famine. And what is one of the afflictions that Elisha pulled off? It did not, what? Did not rain for a number of years. Was Elisha being just a nasty guy? No. Elisha wasn't being nasty. He didn't start this. This is the verse that Elijah was administering. The prophets were administering these curses. When the prophets saw defeat, or when they told the king, don't go out to battle, you're going to get defeated. Why did they say that? Because the nation had apostatized spiritually. And they said that God is going to bring his cursing on. It wasn't that they were being unpatriotic. Verse 21, If then you act with hostility against me, you're still unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times more. I will let loose among you the beasts of the field. They shall be rift you of children, destroy your cattle, reduce your number so your roads lie deserted. If these things you not turn to me but act with hostility, then I will act with hostility to you. I will strike you seven times for your sins. I will bring upon you a sword which will execute vengeance for the... Note the word. 
covenant. See, it's all structured according to the covenant. And when you gather together in your cities, I will send pestilence among you, so you'll be delivered into enemy hands. When I break the staff of your bread, ten women will bake your bread in one oven, and they will bring back your bread in rationed amounts, so you'll eat and not be satisfied. Starvation. Another sign of God's cursing. Then he goes on to describe the intensity. And in verse 29, this was literally fulfilled twice in the nation's history. Once in 586 in the city of Jerusalem and another in 70 A.D. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you shall eat. We get to those passages. I'm going to give you a passage out of Josephus where eyewitnesses, Jewish mothers were so hungry they ate the arms off their babies. That went on during this horrible, climactic curse on Jerusalem. It was a sign. Now, those, those awful events of history aren't random. They are all prophesied here. Verse 31, I will lay waste your cities as well. I will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your soothing aromas. I will make the land desolate so your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled over it. Look at that one. What's that saying? They're going to be removed and the nation is not going to go down in military defeat. It's going to be occupied by enemy powers. And the enemies are going to come in and they're going to look at it and they're going to say, what a cursed land this is. What a cursed land. This is an awful land. And that's going to be pagans saying that of the land that was once flowing with milk and honey. You see why we're saying that this is the period of the disciplinary truths of God? It's all forecast here. Now, in verse 40, here's what Solomon was thinking about in his prayer. Stay in Leviticus. Verse 40, If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers and their unfaithfulness, and so on, verse 42, then I will remember what? Which covenant? Abrahamic or Sinaitic? What is the covenant that brings relief and security? It says, I will remember my covenant with Jacob. My covenant with Isaac. See, that's the Abrahamic covenant. When they go to confess their sins, they've already violated the terms of the Mosaic covenant by their sin. So we can't, we violated that covenant because of sin. So now our security to get back to blessing has to come about because of the Abrahamic covenant of election. Eternal security always hangs on sovereign election doesn't hang on God's righteous commandments. can't. And that eliminates human merit from the security issue. The security issue is not grounded on your merit. It's not grounded on my merit. security issue is grounded on God's sovereignty, God's omnipotence. And he's the one who's going to fort, move his program ahead. And what he says is, when you sin, you violated the, the terms of the occupation, but I'll remember my covenant. For the land will be abandoned, shall make up for its Sabbaths, and so on. In spite of this, when they're in the land of the enemies, verse 44, I will not reject them. Now look at the language in verse 44. Here's the language of eternal security. Look at it carefully. In spite of this, when they're in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them. What's the issue here? Their righteousness or God's covenant? It's God's covenant and God's glory. See where we want to get our heads? When we talk about confession and so on, it's God's program. That's where our eternal security is. It's not because we're so great. It's because God is great and He is not going to permit His name to be defaced and defamed once He's committed to a task. He will bring it to pass. That's the basis of our security. Not for things we do. Things we do just don't count. I mean, obviously they count in the sense that he wants us to do them. But our little puny good works isn't what's the glue that's holding this whole thing together. It's God's sovereignty that's holding it together. And so, I will remember the covenant of the name. I brought them out of the land of Egypt and so on. And that's going to be the restoration. And that's the whole story. And that's the basis for Solomon's prayer of dedication in 1 Kings chapter 8. You see what I'm saying? Is that when you read these prayers... There's a theology behind the prayers, very carefully constructed. 
Father, we thank You that You remain a gracious Savior. That You preserved these truths down through the centuries. We thank You tonight that we can peer into the life of Your chosen people. That Your Spirit can illuminate our hearts to what kind of a God You are. What kind of covenants You have made with men. And how You honor those covenants down through the centuries in spite of what we do. And we give you praise through Christ's name. Amen.